Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of The Remote Real Estate Investor. I'm Michael, and today I'm joined by my co-hosts, Tom Schneider and Emil Shore. And today we're going to be talking about some different strategies that you could pursue with your real estate investing. So I think a lot of people are very familiar with a couple different strategies, but today we're going to be talking about high level, what the different strategies are, and what might be a good fit for you if you're just getting started. So let's get into it. So in this episode, guys, I want to talk about five major strategies or categories, if you will. So I like to talk about wholesaling, fix and flipping, burring, long-term buy and hold, or just rather buy and hold. And then we're going to end with house hacking. Guys, before we start talking about these topics, want to give a quick shout out to Kay Winters 34, who left us an awesome review recently. I've been listening to this podcast for the past year since it started. I cannot say enough good things. The hosts interact in a lighthearted manner to make it a very easy listen. I have learned a ton and it reinforces my belief that this is the way to financial freedom. Thank you so much. Awesome review. Appreciate it. I'm with you. This is my path to financial freedom as well. So leave us a review. We'll give you guys a shout out in a future episode. Thanks so much, Kay Winters. I guess my mom was right. I do have a face made for radio. <laughs> Ooh. There you go. That lightheartedness coming out. So Tom, do you want to kick things off and talk to us a little bit about wholesaling? Wholesaling. Yes. So I think before getting into some of the pros and cons, we're going to put a definition out of these different strategies. So with wholesaling, this is a really interesting industry. And basically what this is, is this you are getting a property into contract and then selling the contract. And the difference between that sale price and what you sell it for, that's what you're making as your commission. So you're never actually taking title and owning the property. You're doing sort of an arbitrage where you're getting right in between. So there are some states where it's a, there's a little bit more nuanced to the technical aspects, but, but at a very high level, you know, you're not buying the property. You are selling that property. And I'm sure a lot of you who own properties or have seen signs on the, on the road that says, we buy ugly houses, those are all forms of wholesaling. And I get in my mailbox every day, guaranteed, like a couple of letters that was written by a robot that made it look like it was a handwritten saying, I'm looking to buy your property in blah, blah, blah. And these are just wholesalers. It's their game. And you may get phone calls to like, hey, I'm a local investor interested. These are wholesalers. And as an owner, I find it kind of annoying a little bit. It just, it, you know, it just creates a lot of clutter in my Don't hate Tom. mail and my voicemail <laughs> and all of this stuff. So nothing against wholesaling. Well, I guess maybe something against wholesaling because you're jamming <laughs> up my inbox. Yeah, dude, you're, you're, you definitely got something against wholesaling. You're right. You're raining on Emil's parade, man. It's funny. I'm... Oh, Emil's. Well, you know, he's using some of the techniques as a wholesaler, but he's not wholesaling though, right? He's looking to buy right. it. Yes. Wholesaling is good, honest work. And what is, I'm going to just keep kind of riffing on wholesaling. <laughs> With wholesaling, oftentimes these people are looking for quick sailors. And man, I was at a, a real estate conference and I heard this acronym talking about wholesaling and it was kind of dark, but I think it's like kind of true. Like it's, I think it's like death, divorce, and there's like one more D like death because with a lot of people who are trying to sell quickly, it's like some traumatic event happened and they're just looking for someone to buy it pretty quickly. That's where wholesalers are, I'd say like pretty active. I personally wouldn't ever want to sell to a wholesale. Hopefully I don't, I'm not in a position where I need to. Just because if you're selling to a wholesaler, you're, you're often selling below 
what the market value is. You know, and the upside of doing that is you'll be able to sell very quickly, but I wouldn't recommend. Okay, enough talking about my personal uh, thoughts on, on wholesaling. But anyways, Tom rant on wholesaling done. Over. Somebody fill the air. Somebody fill the air. Quick. Wholesaling has gotten a bad rap. There's a lot of bad wholesalers out there, but the good ones, they find people who are in some type of distress, like you mentioned. They have a death in the family, divorce, they're trying to get rid of a property. Maybe it's someone who can't afford their mortgage anymore, whatever it may be. And they help that person get out of distress or they can, right? A lot of times, wholesaled homes are not in very good condition. Like if you're an owner and you needed to sell your property and it's in good shape, you could probably just go list it, right? But if it needs a lot of work, if you need a quick sale, all those things, a wholesaler can actually be a great option for those people. Yes, you're not going to get top dollar, but it potentially gets you out of a hairy or difficult situation for you as the owner. So they, you know, I know they get a bad rap, but they, they do have a, 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 a place and a purpose, I think. And on the flip side, they help investors who don't do this acquisition effort on their own. They help those investors who are looking for distressed properties, need some work, whatever it may be. They help them find that. And in return, they get that difference that you mentioned, right? So a wholesaler finds a property, gets it under contract for 50K, has a list of investors. One investor agrees to pay 75K and the wholesaler made that $25,000 for doing all the marketing, all the work that was required to get that contract, which is a lot of work to get one contract, let me tell you. So that's kind of the value that the wholesaler brings to the table. So great synopsis. Tom, do you have something to add? Uh you want to get on the list of the buyers of wholesalers. I mean, wholesaling is good hard work. You're blasting out into a ton of people trying to get you know, a very low percentage, high volume game of actual conversion. But if you don't have capital to buy a property, like this could be a way to get in the action as a wholesaler. Exactly. That was going to be my question. Who should consider being a wholesaler and who should consider buying from wholesalers? Yeah. So Tom, I think you just touched on you know, who should consider being a wholesaler is someone yep. who doesn't have capital to get in the game their own capital getting game. This is a good way to, to generate some cash, but understand that you do need to go understand the local rules and laws governing real estate transactions in your market because they do vary like you were talking about. So make sure you go understand those before doing anything. But so then who would be a good person to utilize a wholesaler as a buyer? I mean, I think anyone in an acquisition, right? Or I don't know, do you have any preconceived answers to this question? I mean, no, asking for a friend. Sure. That's what they say, Michael, asking for friends. Well, I, sure. so, I mean, like Amelia, you were touching on if you're on the buying side and don't do this on your own very regularly, it can be a good way to go. It's just tough because a lot of times those types of investors buying from wholesalers are looking for under market deals. And if the wholesaler is making a spread in the middle, a lot of times that value can already have been extracted from the property. So I think anybody could be on the list uh, as a buyer for wholesalers. And just evaluate the deals they're sending you. Make sure that there's still enough meat on the bone for you. Because a lot of times, like you're saying, Emil, these properties need rehab and you're buying them under market value. So make sure that you're still buying them under market value and the rehab you're doing. When that's done, there's still equity spread in the property. That's the key. It's like if the wholesaler is usually going to, you know, let's say you're on the wholesaler's list. They're going to say, I have a property, three bed, two bath, X square footage. Here's what I'm selling it for. Here's the estimated rehab. And then here's the after repair value retail price. I would say the person who should be buying from the wholesaler is someone who really knows their rehab numbers. Like if you have pictures, you can have in your head say, okay, this is what I think it will be. Never take the wholesaler's estimate to be true, right? Like a lot of times they know the numbers that need to work to make it look like it's going to be a great deal, but you need to know your numbers. So I would say if you're brand new, I would, I would be very cautious about going and buying from a wholesaler. 
I'd say if you've done a couple rehabs yourself, you're like, you know your market, you know whatever rehab budgets within a margin of safety, then I think it's probably safer to go to a wholesaler as my two cents. Love it. I like that recommendation too. Yeah, good call. Okay, so let's move on to our next strategy, which is fix and flip. So Emil, do you want to start us off by talking and defining what a fix and flip is? Yeah. So it's similar in a sense to wholesaling in that you are typically finding a property that is in distress and needs some work, you can buy it for under market. And then instead of flipping the contract to somebody else, you're buying the property, you're doing the renovation yourself, and then you're making your money on the sale once it hits that after repair value that we mentioned with the wholesaler, right? So you buy a property for $100,000 and needs $50,000 worth of work. And you estimate you can sell it at 225. So now you're making 75K on that flip, you know, obviously minus all the fees you pay when you sell. But the idea is that you actually buy it, you fix it yourself, and then you flip it either to, you can flip it to an investor, you can flip it to an owner occupant. You're doing the whole process yourself. Awesome. And thoughts on who makes good fix and flippers? as a strategy? This is another way to make money faster, I would say, you know, with like buy and hold, it's typically like, you know, you're playing a longer game with fix and flip, you need capital or you need hard money, either one. But typically it's like you have some capital and you're looking to to make short-term profit versus holding long-term and making cash flow and appreciation, all that. Mm-hmm. So I guess it depends on, are you trying to make money in the short term, or are you trying to do a long-term hold and, and make money and compound over time? And on that too, just keeping in mind that the money that you earn from a flip profit is taxed very differently than the money you earn from rental income. Yes. So just be aware of that when you're calculating your numbers. In that example you gave, in that $75,000 profit, you know, minus your closing costs, let's forget that for a minute, but that 75,000 is going to be taxed very differently than if you made 75,000 in a year from rental income. So just be aware of that when you're, when you're running your numbers. Right. This will meander into pros and cons. Uh, so two huge risk variables in the fix and flipper. One of them is on the property themselves. You know, if you're buying a fix and flip, there's likely some major things that need to be fixed. And unless you're really good at estimating those costs, then you could get underwater very quickly where you're end up, you know, paying more. So that's a major risk. I, I wouldn't recommend doing this remotely. I wouldn't recommend doing this if you don't have a construction background or you're not partnering with a very strong construction skilled acumen, you know, partner. Uh, so that's one other risk, one risk. And the other one I think is getting your hand in the cookie jar. If like the market was to turn, unlike a long-term buy and hold where the risks of the value going up and down are going to smooth out a little bit. Peanut butter spread. Mm, peanut butter. Mm, chunky peanut butter. <laughs> uh, smooth. No, we're talking about smooth peanut butter. <laughs> More of a chunky guy. Anyways, okay. You, in doing buy, fix and flip, you're just way more at risk to fluctuations in the market. So those are two really important variables that you are opening yourself to risk in doing this fix and flip strategy. But there are people that do it and make a lot of money with it. But I know there's also people who do it and, and bite off a little bit more than they can chew. A huge, really important aspect of a fix and flip strategy is speed of redeploying capital. So with a property that you're doing a fix and flip on, oftentimes people will count their returns on a yearly basis. So like, let's say I'm doing this 
with a hundred thousand dollars and I you know buy a property, fix it up, and I turn that capital over multiple times, instead of just say making like a 15% or 20% or 10%, whatever that number is, if I redo that same compound that multiple times in a year, that's how successful flippers make money is being able to move very quickly because the the holding cost of capital is pretty high, especially if you're borrowing money and having done some consulting for companies that do flips like this, like a really key metric that they're following, you know, not as closely as obviously the dollars and keeping that inside, but it's totally related is how quickly can they get the property rent ready, you know, get to the market and then how many days on market it is. And so they can take the money from the sale and just redo it again and rinse and repeat, rinse and repeat. And Tom, those are all really great points. Any tips for folks on how they can mitigate some of the risk associated with the market volatility while they're doing a flip? Um, I think where there is seasonality, you know, kind of like if, if you can kind of time your completion of projects out to be where properties are most marketable, which oftentimes is in the spring after the school season. Mm -hmm. But if you're racing through doing these fix and flips as fast as you can, that maybe that, that doesn't matter as much. You're just trying to move as quickly as possible. I would say know your lane, like know what you can estimate really well. Like again, the ability to estimate those costs and avoid the kind of unknown <laughs> costs as, as much as you can is just really, really important. And I mean, anyone who's exercising this strategy successfully knows that. Yep. But uh, if you are going to do it, know, <laughs> know your costs really well, know your cost basis. And just to add to that, to kind of alley-oop myself, I would say evaluate every flip as a long-term buy and hold mm. so that if things do go south while you're mid-flip, you can just hold the property, rent it out, cash flow it, and then flip it. Do your flip portion at a later date. I'm going to drop another one of these real estate conference comments. So I think it was talking with some of these folks who were fixing flippers and a lot of them just ended up turning into buy and holds. And to Michael's point, if the market does go south, a lot of these people who were doing fix and flips ended up just as to being long term buy and hold investors and liked it. And so just the thing to be aware of is making sure that your capital, however you're funding these deals, you have the ability to convert it into long-term financing or it's you can still hold on to it and, and the deal still makes sense, which leads kind of segues very nicely into our next strategy, which is the Burr method. And Emil, I know you're working on one of these right now. So can you define for us what the Burr is? I'm doing a cheater Burr where interest <laughs> rates have plummeted and home values are skyrocketing. So traditionally in a Burr, it's buy, renovate, rent, refinance, repeat. It's kind of like flipping, but to a bank is the best way to think about it. So you buy a home that's distressed, needs work. So you buy it for under market value. You put in your rehab to improve the property. And then you take it to a bank to refinance out most or all of your capital. And then the last R being repeat. So you go and do that process over and over again. And especially after I think like 2010 to currently, like because the market bottomed out and started going back up for years and years and years, this was a very, very, very popular strategy people were using to quickly grow a portfolio. There's a lot of like nuance and details into how do you do this correctly so you can pull out most, if not all of your capital. But that's the gist of of how this works and why people use it. Okay. And so who would this be a good strategy for? And who might this not be a good strategy for? I think it's probably similar to wholesaling and fix and flip in that I think it's best for someone who knows the rehab budget, right? It's really easy to mess up the rehab budget or to think you're getting a deal when you're not. And then you think the after repair value, right? 
is going to be higher than it it could be. So there's just a lot of learning that comes with this. I don't know if you know someone does on their first try they get it perfect, but I think it's just you know you got to say I'm willing to take that risk and and get your feet wet with it. And the two big variables are knowing your after repair value, what is it going to appraise for, and the rehab required to get there. And then do the numbers work in that formula? Mm-hmm. And I would say too, it, it, this is definitely for someone who who wants to take on some risk, who likes a project, but you mentioned, you know, not getting it perfect and and kind of being leery of that. I think it's really important again, to identify the numbers and to really call out what that means, even if you do miss the mark. So if you buy a property for 50 K and you put 30 into it, now you're 80 into it. And so, you know, you think it'll appraise for a hundred. And so you can go get a loan at 80% loan of value and get all of your 80 K back. Let's say it only appraises for 90. So if it appraises for 90, you're going to go get 80% of a 90K loan, you'll get $72,000 back, which means you left 8K in the deal, which still probably isn't too bad. I mean, if you run the numbers on the return on investment on that deal, that could be fantastic. And then if you were to go buy that same $90,000 property at 20% down, you'd have to put in 18,000. So you get to have this property for only you know, set whatever, 7.2 or 8,000, whatever number I said. So it can still be a really great strategy. Even if you miss the mark, you just don't want to miss really big. Right. This is good for growth mode, BRR. So like if you don't need the cash flow now, because in the process of doing a BRR, you are increasing your monthly debt obligation. Now you might net making it and have more cash flow. You should, when you're done with flipping that new refinanced capital that you're getting out of it into a new property, you should cash flow more. But in between time, you are increasing the amount of debt that you own the property. So your monthly payments is going to be a little bit higher. So I think it's a fantastic way to grow faster and leverage appreciation by doing the whole refinance aspect of the BRR. But if you're in a position where you don't want to increase your total debt and you want to have as high as loan to value ratio as possible, then doing that refinance aspect of the BRR, which is really the key R in the BRR strategy, is uh, maybe not the right fit. Perfect. Go ahead, Emil. The only thing I was going to add is that I forgot to mention, typically investors, when they're buying, they're doing it all cash. So that's another thing to think about. Cash helps you buy from the seller quicker, right? So that makes your value prop to the the seller better. And if the home really does need a lot of rehab, the bank oftentimes may not lend on that because it needs a lot of work. It's riskier for them. So that's one of the other caveats is, you know, you need that capital. A lot of times people are buying these properties all cash to be able to do the deal on the front end. And something else along those lines to keep in mind is that lenders often have requirements about how long you have to own the property for before they'll give you a refinance. So definitely ask that question and have that conversation on the front end before you purchase the property. Because uh, the last thing you want is to get buy a property, rehab it for a month and think you can go get your money 30 days later. But in reality, it might be six months to a year. So you just want to run your numbers while you're owning the property for however you financed it at the beginning, however you purchased it. And then also run your numbers about after you put debt on this thing, what does that property performance look like? And make sure those numbers make sense in both situations. So let's shift gears here and talk about house hacking. Tom, do you want to give a kind of high level definition of what that is and talk to us about who might be a good candidate for a house hack? Yes. So a house hack is you are buying a property to live in and you're renting out either the other rooms or perhaps it's a duplex or tripex, the other units, or perhaps there's maybe even two little houses on the property. Isn't that nice? A little community. But at a high level, house hack is you're living in one room unit and somebody else is living in the other room unit or the other little house. You're so fortunate to have that. But Tom, this show is is called The Remote Real Estate Investor. If I'm buying a primary, that's not real estate investing. 
Well, Michael, I'm hoping you're alley-ooping yourself because I just, I missed the ball <laughs> that you threw up for me to dunk. <laughs> Go ahead, Michael. <laughs> it wasn't an intentional alley-oop. I thought it was a lob, but I think it's definitely a hybrid. Approach. I was looking the other way. <laughs> you got caught looking (laughs) yeah it's it's definitely a hybrid approach in that Mm. you get to cover your own housing needs and expenses often with rental income so you get to experience being a landlord whilst getting your owner occupant financing which is the best type and cheapest type of financing available and you get to live somewhere so i think it's it's a really really cool hybrid approach and it's got a lot of benefits and allows you to toe dip into being an investment property owner without having to do that fully. And so you get to kind of hold it close to your vest, have some degree of control. And so this is, we were talking about who might this be a good strategy for, who might this not be a good strategy for. Well, this is definitely not for a remote real estate investor because by definition, you can't be remote and do this. You have to go be an owner occupant to begin with, at least. What you do after the fact is totally up to you, uh, but you need to go live in the property and live in it. You know, cool kind of, related to this strategy that a lot of cities are getting looser around guidelines of allowing 80 units. So you could buy a house and it's just a house and you're living in it with whatever your family or whatnot or your friends. And then you can build a small little dwelling units. And there's so many cool companies popping up that allows that that does these uh, prefab little houses. So you could even back into this strategy, not even planning on it, you know, necessarily upfront when you buy your house. But there's a lot of tailwinds in supporting kind of a, a reverse, a late house hack with cities getting friendlier of building these small units, as well as companies that build these small units getting cheaper and, and better and faster. Awesome. I know it's something that we're like kind of considering, you know, putting a little ADU in law unit. Yeah. And so for those who might not be familiar, what does an ADU stand for? Accessory dwelling unit. Awesome. And so Emil, who do you think would be a bad candidate for a house hack other than, you know, someone who wants to be a remote real estate investor? I don't think there's a such thing as a bad candidate. I will tell you personally, boom. That, like if you're cool with it, you should 100% do it. I will tell you personally, I'm married, I have a kid. At this point in my life, it's not something I'm interested in. I would have loved to have done this when I was single or whatever, you know, didn't have kids, but now it's like, we have a home, we have a backyard, we have our own space. I like that. If you are in the same situation as me and you're like, I still want to like power to you, go do it. There's no reason you shouldn't or couldn't do this. It's really just about uh, personal preference, I would say. Yep. And like Tom, you were mentioning the space aspect can lend itself really well to this. If you have two properties, you know, two single family homes in the same lot or a, a duplex, triplex or quad, you know, you can still often have your own space. You just got to decide if that's something that you're okay with based on the setup of the property. Yep. But definitely look for opportunities. You know, large lots are great. Zoned multifamily lots are great. So I think that there's a lot of opportunity out there, especially like what you were mentioning with cities changing guidelines and regulations around adding additional ADUs. Yeah. Yep. So many people in our community are converting their garages to an ADU. I honestly would love to do that, but our we have a detached garage that's in the backyard. If it was in the front, it's kind of like they're separate. They have their own entrance and stuff. But with the backyard, it kind of changes it. So we've decided to hold off on converting it to an ADU now. But a lot of people in our community are doing it. Right on. All right. So let's shift gears here, guys, to our final and probably bread and butter topic, the buy and hold strategy. So Emil, do you want to walk us through what the buy and hold is? And then Tom, maybe you can take us through who might be and who might not be a good candidate for this strategy? 
Michael, I would love to, but you know what? I'm going to pass the baton back to you. You know, Tom and I have been carrying the load this entire time. And you know what? Ooh. It hurts. You're up. Are you guys' backs exhausted from carrying the team? Yeah. <laughs> Man. Michael's out here doing all this fancy alley-oops and crossovers. And you know For what? Real. We're going to do it to you, Michael. Learn to shoot a free throw, Michael. Shoot a, <laughs> shoot a free throw. Get to the line. You know, the ironic, the ironic thing in all of this is that I, like, I suck at basketball. It was like that and volleyball were the ones, like the two sports I just never could get good at and i should i remember i always like i shoot the basketball from my chest oh god it's how i throw it and people are like really like really you're like you're, <laughs> you're like you're a grown man <laughs> i have weird uh body control like i think like repeating like a little action great at it but like basketball they called me technical tom because i like i don't think i like had good i don't know i would just i would flail a little bit oh my god i was well, good now i don't feel so bad i get i, I get rebounds that. you know anyway. yeah i'm a good passer that's for sure. Unethical ways. Okay, sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> All right. So the buy and hold strategy is at its crux kind of in the definition. So it involves buying a property and literally just holding on to it for some set amount of time. And there's, you might have often heard different time periods associated with this. You might hear the short-term buy and hold, the long-term buy and hold. So for me personally, a short-term buy and hold is anything inside of five years. And a long-term buy and hold is anything north of 10, seven to 10 years, I would say. And so you buy it, you hold it or whatever your goal is, whether that's appreciation or cash flow, and collect those things, whether it's cash flow, you're hopefully collecting cash that whole time. And if it's appreciation play, you're hopefully gaining appreciation inside of that time. And then you can decide what to do with it once you've accomplished your goal, whether that's a cash flow number or an appreciation number. You can decide to sell it and utilize maybe a 1031 exchange, or you can refinance it and tap into some of the equity, which is kind of what Emil was alluding to previously, that he's got a, uh, a burr without the renovation because he got lucky and bought well, and there's been a lot of appreciation in the area. So that in itself is what a buy and hold is. So you guys want me to keep talking about pros and cons and who might be a good candidate? Yeah, go for it, man. We'll just chip in. Great. Sure. So- I would say a good candidate for buy and hold is anybody with a decent time horizon. If you are looking to make money yesterday or tomorrow for the next thing, then buy and hold is probably not going to be a good fit for you. This is definitely a slow and steady wins the race type of strategy. And as Tom, you always say, it's a get rich, long-term greedy, right? So it's, it's a very slow process. It's definitely not overnight. So don't expect things to change rapidly. And so if you're someone that is looking for that rapid growth, this is probably not a good fit for you. But you could definitely combine a couple of these strategies, like the Burr method with a long-term buy and hold. You can Burr a property, then you hold on to for a long time. And so you can, you can grow really rapidly that way. But just in and of itself, buying a property, sitting on it, you don't tend to see rapid changes very quickly. So just know that. So alternatively, you know, this could be a really great strategy for anybody that's got a long enough time horizon that doesn't necessarily want to be super active with their investment strategy. They just want to buy something and hold on to it kind of like a stock and just let it do its thing over the years. This is a perfect strategy for you. So if you have some capital to start to make a purchase or you can partner with someone that has what you don't, this can be a, a really phenomenal strategy. And you look back in 5, 10, 15 years about on the investment and you're thinking, man, that was awesome. You know, this was such a great investment. I'm so glad I did this 5, 10, 15 years ago. Hopefully is the sentiment, not darn it. Why did I buy that stupid thing 5, 10, 15 years ago? But I think given a long enough time horizon, if we look at historics and values and what they've done, again, given a long enough time horizon, they've gone up significantly. 
And when you compare that against the stock market, when you compare your total return in real estate against the stock market returns, I think people are, are very pleasantly surprised with how real estate performs as a general asset class. Solid. How did you guys? Nailed it, You man. did great. You, uh, yes. you made both of the free throws. They switched. Nice. From the chest. They both went right in. Swish. Um, <laughs> I did do the, the grandma bounce into the bucket. Hey, don't knock it if it works, man. Don't knock it if it works. That's what, <laughs> yeah. I'm, saying. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, just agree with uh, everything Michael said. I mean, the way that I think about it kind of long term is I'm looking for something with pretty low overhead. I'm not doing it to make another job. I'm doing it to create wealth and just kind of build this machine that uh, when I'm ready to turn on the spigot for just, you know, to live off of, I can I can do that if I want to or I can continue to work if I want to. It's just that optionality is with the is what I'm just trying to build with my long term final strategy. You can work if you want to. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. No. So something to just keep in mind too, final thought is that these are some high level strategies that are available to folks. Be thinking about what interests you if you're unfamiliar with any of them. If you've already mastered some, you can think about expanding your tool belt into others. Uh, and also keep in mind that a lot of these can be combined into one another and mixed and match. It doesn't have to be one or the other. But I would definitely say if you're starting out, just be cognizant of getting smooth peanut butter spread too thin across too many avenues. It can happen very quickly. You can get shiny object syndrome. So pick one, go learn about it, see if it's a good fit for you and look to pursue that because you can very easily get distracted. All right, everybody, that was our episode. Thank you so much for listening. Feel free to give us a rating and review wherever it is you listen to your podcast. Those are really helpful for us and we'd love to hear feedback from you all as well as any episode ideas that you want to hear more about. So thanks so much for listening. We'll catch you on the next one. Happy investing. Happy investing. Happy investing. Happy investing.